Would you remain standing as we read God's word this morning? Out of Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. And to, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Gracious and heavenly Father, God is... We spend these next few moments in your word, Lord, I pray that you would change us. Lord, we know that the preaching of your word is not simply about the transfer of information, but Lord, it is about transformation. You don't desire for us to simply know more. You desire for us to be more like your son. So Lord, I pray this morning... Through the preaching of your word, God, this time that we have together, I pray that we would be changed for your glory, your glory alone. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past six weeks, we have actually been looking at the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And in fact, this evening, or this morning rather, is the final church of the seven. Now, uh, just by way of recap, our first six weeks, the first week we saw uh, the church at Ephesus, and they were a persecuted church. They stood for doctrinal integrity, but they had left Christ out of the center. They had left their first love, and they were called by Jesus to repent for this. The church at Smyrna, we referred to as the suffering church, they dealt with significant per, uh, persecution, but the Lord promised them a conqueror's crown. That was the first church that there was nothing negative said about. The church at Pergamum, the theologically soft church, as we called it, they stood fast in the midst of difficulty, and yet they allowed false teaching inside the church, and they were called to repent by Christ. The church at Thyatira, they were what we referred to as the tolerant church. That they were enduring, they were serving, they loved one another, and yet they had allowed a false teacher to spread lies and to promote sin within the body, and they were called to repent as well. The church at Sardis, we referred to as the dead church. Uh, they looked like it was alive on the outside to everyone, and yet Christ said, inwardly, you are dead and they were called to obey the word of God 
and to repent. And then last week, we looked at the church of Philadelphia, who, like the church at Smyrna, was the one of only two churches uh, that was nothing negative said about. They were small, they were faithful, they were steadfast, and Jesus promised them eternity with him. But now as we look at the church at Laodicea, there's some things we need to know about the, uh, the city of Laodicea first. The city of Laodicea lay at the center of three major trade routes for Rome. So it was very busy. It was very large. Uh, it was a bustling metropolis, if you will. They were outrageously wealthy. And I mean that in every sense of the word. They were outrageously wealthy as a city and across the individual households. It was 10 miles north of Colossae and 5 miles southwest of Hierapolis. That'll matter in a minute when we talk about that. And in 60, 61 AD, there was a major earthquake. A major earthquake in this area and it leveled cities. We talked about that with Philadelphia and some others. It leveled cities and all of them, Rome came in and said, hey, we would like to help you rebuild. Here's some money. We want to help you rebuild uh, your cities, your buildings, things of that nature. But Laodicea is the only one historically. It's written down in history that they refused Rome's help because they had all the money they needed. They were self-sufficient. They could handle it themselves and they did not need any outside you know, in all of the previous six churches, we've seen certain aspects that we could emulate, also uh, certain traits that we, if we have in our lives or in our church, then we need to repent of them. However, the church in Laodicea is probably the most prominent. It certainly was the most wealthy, but probably the most prominent and uh, known church of the seven, at least in church circles, and also maybe the most applicable to the American church today. All, I, I think all seven uh, of the churches, as we've said, there are aspects of them that are applicable to the American church. There are certainly aspects of them that are applicable to our own personal lives. And there are aspects of each one of them that are applicable here at Eastwood. But of all of them, I believe that the church at Laodicea is the most applicable to the American church because... Compared to the rest of the world, the American church is the most influential. It is the most wealthy. It is also the most comfortable of all the churches in the world. In light of the characteristics of the church at Laodicea, it's not that we haven't with the previous six. I'm certain that you have. Uh, but I believe that because of the characteristics of the church at Laodicea, we need to pay careful attention to the aspects of, of their character. We need to pay attention to what Christ calls them to and what Christ calls out in them. And what I believe the Lord desires for us to understand this morning is that finally faithful disciples find all their value in Christ and in His presence. Faithful disciples find all their value in Christ and in His presence. And now you heard Brother David read a moment ago this message, just like the other six, is addressed to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church in Laodicea. And he writes the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And the first thing we see from this passage is that faithful disciples honor Christ as Lord over all 
creation. It says that he is the amen. Now, the amen, the word amen is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that was carried over into Greek by Hebrew Christians. Um, and, and the word means so be it, or it is true, or so it is, or let it be. It is a very strong affirmation. It is to say, when you say amen, it's to say everything that was just said is absolutely true and unqualified. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the amen, notice that he's not one of one of some true things. He's not one among many true things. He is the amen, which means that Jesus is absolute certainty. He is the final word, according to Hebrews 1. There is no truth beyond Jesus. He is the personification of truth. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, I am truth. Then in verse 14, again, he says, not only is he the amen, but he is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness. He is a witness who will declare the truth and he will do it all the time in its entirety. I mean, you can have a witness who stand, who, who's going to uh, accuse someone or give validation of some declaration in court. But if they don't show up, it's not any help at all. If they don't tell the truth, it's not any help at all. And yet Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the one who will always show up and I will always tell the truth. And then he says, the beginning of God's creation. Let me have to take a moment here. The beginning of God's creation. I will say this, kind of an unfortunate translation. Because it makes it sound like Jesus is the first of many things that God created. He's the beginning of God's creation. Because in English, we use the word beginning to mean the first of. Um, so it's the first in a number of things. But the word is actually, can be easily translated and understood to mean ruler, head of, or origin. He is the origin. So if you read it that way, it says the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. He is the ruler of God's creation. He is the head of God's creation. So when Jesus says all this, it's to affirm what John said in John chapter 1 verse 3, that through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. Therefore, Jesus is the creator. He is creation's ruler. He is creation's Lord. And he say, okay, so you're... You're, you're saying all of this, but what's the point? Why is he saying all this? Because remember, remember every single one of these introductions that Jesus gives. Once you read the passage, you find that Jesus reveals himself to be what they need. So whatever it is that they are lacking or whatever he is praising, he reveals himself to be what they need, right? So the church that's going to be persecuted, he reveals himself to be faithful, he reveals himself to be what? He tells them, right before he tells them that they're very possibly going to die, he says, I am the resurrection, right? So we know uh, that he declares himself to be whatever they need. And in this passage, he tells them, I am 
the personification of truth. I am the amen. I will always show up. I will always tell the truth. And I am the Lord over all creation. You know what Jesus is setting up? You need to buckle up because what Jesus is setting up is he's saying, what I'm about to say, your tendency is going to be to say, well, that's not true of us. Jesus is saying, I need to let you know that everything that comes out of my mouth is categorically and unqualified in its truth. So he's saying, you may look at it and say, that's not true. Jesus is saying, you can't because I am truth and I'm about to tell you what I think of you. It's as if to say... What we say sometimes in conversation, right? When we say something like, now, I don't mean to offend you, but. Which means what? You're about to get offended, right? I don't mean anything bad, but. They're about to say something bad, right? Jesus is saying, I am the truth. So I'm just preparing you for the fact that I'm about to tell you something that you're going to want to say is false. But I am the truth. So you can't say it's false. See, Jesus, in this passage, this first section here, faithful disciples honor Christ as Lord over all creation, then Jesus is Lord. You said it just a minute ago in the baptismal waters. I say it every single time. Jesus is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, we are told that there will come a day We love this passage, right? I love to preach this passage. We love this passage. There will come a day where every knee will bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that passage says? That passage says that there will come a day where everyone will declare something about Jesus that is already currently true. Do you notice that? It doesn't say that there will come a day where everyone will say Jesus is now Lord. It says there will come a day where everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So when we come to understand and we submit to this truth, it changes the way we see everything. Because it means Jesus alone has the right to tell us both who we are and how we are to live. Jesus alone has this. Everything he says is true. He's the amen. That means he gets to tell you and he gets to tell me how we're supposed to live. How we should conduct ourselves. It means that Jesus alone is the one who gets to tell us what the church should look like. What the church should be about and what the church should be doing. It means that Jesus' word, his word is the authority. What he says goes, what, and he alone has this right. And most of us will say, absolutely, that is so true. Until it infringes upon our own opinions. And then the moment it infringes upon our own opinions, we conveniently ignore the fact that Jesus alone gets to say what the church looks like and what we are supposed to look like. Make no mistake, like I've said this a couple of times um, in this series, your opinions and my opinions don't change the truth that Jesus alone is the one who gets to have an opinion on what the church does and on what his people do. Because he is the amen, the faithful and true witness. 
the Lord over all creation. And when we get to a place where we finally submit to this truth, then we should realize, or will realize rather, that faithful disciples depend on Christ for all things. Now, as we jump into these verses where he's actually addressing them, there are, there are at least three things in this passage that uh, if you've been in church for a while, you may be familiar with. Uh, there are three things in this passage uh, that you have heard most likely. Uh, there is one thing that is very common that you've heard, and then there are two things that almost certainly you have heard applied incorrectly. There are two statements in this passage that are misused or misapplied so often they may enter into the category of top ten things that are misquoted from Scripture. And so in chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, he says, I know. Again, this is the seventh time he says, I know. Jesus Christ is aware of what's going on in the church. He is very much aware of what's going on in your heart and in my heart, even in this moment. And he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's the first one that's probably misapplied or misexplained. When you read this passage, you have probably heard it. Um, you, I know I grew up hearing it at youth camps and different things like that. Anybody wants to talk about being a lukewarm Christian? Well, this passage is not Jesus looking at the people at Laodicea and saying, I wish you were on fire for me or you were dead cold toward me. But because you're lukewarm, I have a problem. Does anybody else see the strangeness in applying the fact that the Lord of all creation would look at his church and say, I wish that you didn't care about me at all? You cannot apply this by saying, Jesus said, I want you to either be on fire for me or not care at all. I'd rather you not care at all than be lukewarm. That's crazy. He's not going to say, I'd rather you not care at all. This is actually a direct statement regarding something that they would have understood instantaneously in Laodicea. See, in, in the ancient world, just like in the modern world, really, but in the ancient world, uh, cities and uh, metropolises especially were built around water sources. They were built around water sources, and um, this was what made places very uh, desirable and very wealthy. And 15 miles, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, just a few miles away in Colossae, Colossae was set up against the side of a mountain. Colossae was known throughout the ancient Near East to have some of the purest and most amazing cold mountain water that would pour from the side of the mountain came out of a spring there in Colossae. And people would travel from all over the world to get a cold drink of water from Colossae. You couldn't get better water than from that city. And then 15 miles from Colossae was a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was also well-known throughout the world for their water source, but in a different reason. See, Hierapolis was a tourist destination. Hierapolis was a place you went when you were trying to recover from a medical issue because Hierapolis was full of hot springs. 
mineral-laden hot springs. And people wanted to go to Hierapolis all the time to be able to be refreshed and to heal uh, from whatever thing that ailed them. It was basically the equivalent of soaking in a jacuzzi full of Epsom salt. That's what it was in that day. It was a healing thing. It was refreshing. And people wanted to go there. The issue is Laodicea lie between these two cities and did not have its own water source. And so they still remain today, at least remnants of them. Uh, Laodicea had to bring aqueducts in, Roman aqueducts, that would pipe water from Colossae and would pipe water from Laodicea to come, or um, from Hierapolis to come into Laodicea. And as you can imagine, when the hot water travels five miles and the, and the cold water travels ten miles, uh, what happens when it gets to Laodicea? Well, the cold water is no longer cold. It's traveled through an aqueduct for ten miles. And the hot water is really no longer hot because it's traveled through an aqueduct for five miles. And it's heavy and full of mineral-laden water. So what happens when those two mix together? What do you get? You get lukewarm, mineral-laden water. So the heat, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He says, I wish that you were like a refreshing cold drink of water, like Colossae, or you were a warm and soothing spring of water, like Hierapolis. But because you are lukewarm and mineral-laden... You're useless. That's why I referred to this as the useless church. He says you're useless. In fact, I would say that his rebuke against the church at Laodicea is worse than all of the other ones that he rebuked. See, the other ones he rebuked, he said things like, you know, I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand, which basically meant that he would come and he would make them not exist as a church anymore. He tells them he's going to come and discipline them. He's going to come and, and do all of those things. But this one... It's a little stronger because he says in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, so neither refreshing nor are you rejuvenating, I will spit you out of my mouth. Old translations, King James, others have this very correct. Spit is correct, but it's even stronger than just spit. I'm not going to go down this road really far other than to say that it does mean vomit. It means Jesus is saying, because it was known throughout the world, when you go to Laodicea, don't drink the water. Because it's lukewarm and it's full of minerals. And when you drink it, it will actually make you sick. And Jesus is saying, hey, church in Laodicea, you're just like the water in Laodicea. When I take a drink of you, all I want to do is vomit. Now think about that. All the other churches that were rebuked, Jesus had hard things. And, and we're talking about things like sexual immorality, false teaching, all of those things. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of that. I'm going I'm to discipline you for that. But he looks at the church at Laodicea and simply says, you make me sick. That is the strongest of all of them. You could look at somebody and say, I don't really prefer to have a conversation with you. But when you look them in the face and say, you make me sick, that's entered into a whole other level of conversation. See, he says, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, so this is what you say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now remember... Laodicea is the only city that didn't take Roman help. They were self-sufficient. They were wealthy. They didn't need anything. And Jesus is saying, church, what you're saying is, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. So these are the things that they believe. They were wealthy. 
They had prospered. This word, this phrase means that they believed they had done it themselves. And they were completely self-reliant. So Jesus says, now notice this, it's important. He does not say, because you are rich and you, are, you have prospered and you don't need anything. He says, because you say. Because you say you're rich, because you say you've prospered, and because you say you have need of nothing, not realizing. So what does Jesus say? Jesus is saying, hey, Laodicea, you're living in a false reality. You're living in a false reality, in a false sense of security. Because he says, you say you're rich, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Laodicea, again, very wealthy, very wealthy city. They were wealthy for several reasons. One, they were a medical center. Uh, they were wealthy because they created something called Phrygian eye salve. Okay, so uh, they, they created this eye salve that was good for irritations and things in the eye. Um, they were also wealthy because of their, they had a specific type of sheep that they raised there. And so they had a wool enterprise. They, they made amazing and fine clothing. And they believed that they were wealthy and could take care of themselves. And so the first thing that they would think when they're in Laodicea is they could see. And yet Jesus says, you're blind. They would say, we're clothed well. Jesus says, you're naked. Right? Every, everything that they think they have done on their own, Jesus is telling them, you have done none of these things. And in fact, it's so interesting. He refers to them as wretched. It's not really a word we use too often. It's not a word that's as common in our language today. But the word means miserable or unhappy. Woo. <laughs> Sorry. I can see you now. It's miserable and unhappy is what it means. It means that they are looking at life and looking at ministry and looking at these things. Oh, we, we're having a little bit of trouble here. Looking at these things. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're wretched and you are pitiable. Pitiable. It means, you know, for all their wealth and all their prominence and all their ability, they think the world is looking at them and saying, wow, look at them. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking at you saying, isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? He says, you're poor. And this doesn't just mean a little bit of lack. The word means destitute. That means completely without anything. The lowest of the low. But they're obviously not poor materially. So they are impoverished spiritually. They are poor spiritually. And then he says they, were, they are naked. Now, he says in verse 17, For you say, or because you say, I am rich and I have, I, I, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, and you're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you. So here's what he says. Because you say this, I counsel you to do this. Because you think you're like this, but you're not, I counsel you to do this. And it's this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus actually speaks directly to the three things that they believe made them self-sufficient. 
He says, you think you've got gold, but your gold doesn't matter. You need to get the kind of gold that comes from me. You think you've got eye salve that can take care of anything, but I've got the eye salve that can actually make you see. You think you've got woolen clothes and fine garments, but you have nothing. But if you'll buy it from me, I will give you pure white garments. See, everything he tells them is what? It is gold that is refined, and it is eye salve that will help you see, and it is white clothing that is pure. What he's saying is this, stop depending on yourself and start depending on me. Stop thinking you've got it all taken care of and realize that you need me in the center. See, Jesus looks at them, powerful, wealthy, well-known, self-sufficient, and he says, you make me want to throw up. He tells them they're wretched. They're miserable. He tells them there's so much more. You notice that in this passage? He's saying that you're pitiable. Why? Because you think you've got all this, but there is so much more if you would come to me instead of trying to do it yourself. Church, this is him looking at it. Looking at them and saying, I know you think you're known, and and I know... That you think you have great influence and and great function. And yet you have fallen into the trap of being entirely dependent upon yourself. The scariest thing about this church's problem for me. The scariest thing about this church's problem. Is that if we have fallen into this as a church. Our first reaction will be to say oh that's not us. We have it all together. You realize that? If you're self-sufficient, your first response to a message like this is, oh, that's not us. If this is true of a church, it looks like one that describes ministry in terms that highlight what we have done or what we are doing and not what the Lord has done. It looks like a church that talks more about what we think and little about seeking the Lord's will in each and every circumstance. It looks like a church that designs its ministry and organization by what worked elsewhere or what we think sounds good and not according to the New Testament. One of the worst things the Lord could ever tell us is, you're useless to me. Oh God, may this never be true of me. May it never be true of you. And may it never be true of us. As we seek the Lord... As a church, we should never, hear me, we should never concern ourselves with our own fame, with how influential we are in the Kentucky Baptist Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention, or making certain everyone sees the little trophy every year about how much money we give to the cooperative program. Our only concern should be the glory of God and pleasing Him and living in His presence and having Him be present in our lives in our ministries, in our worship services. And his presence should be obvious. Why? Because finally, faithful disciples abide with Christ for all time. Look at what he says here. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So that's the second one. right? The first one was the hot or cold. That's the first one that's pretty commonly known. The second one is those whom I love... 
I, I reprove or I discipline. The word here for discipline, the root of the word is child. So he is telling them all this. Look, he's, he's looking at them. He's saying, look, you make me sick. You make me want to puke. Yet I love you. I love you deeply. In fact, he's saying, the reason I'm telling you this is because I love you. You remember that growing up? I do this because I love you. Well, I love you too, Dad. Can we switch places? Right? He says, I love you. So I reprove and I discipline. So what? This is the only one when he calls them to repent. See, the other ones he says, so repent, so repent, so repent. Do the things you did at first, that kind of thing. But in this one he says, be zealous and repent. He's saying, hurry up and get it right or I'm going to come and discipline you. So he's not disciplining them. He is warning them that he's going to come discipline them if they don't get it right. So he's saying, literally, hurry up, be intentional, get it right before I have to come and take care of things. Verse 20. The third commonly heard thing also may be one of the top two or three misunderstood and misapplied texts in all of Scripture. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This message is a message to the church. This is not a message. Certainly, when people need to come to faith in Christ, they are being called by the Lord Jesus to respond and to give their lives to him, of course. And that is absolutely true. That's just not what this verse is about. This verse is about a church that had become so self-sufficient, so, uh, so dependent on its own ability to have wealth and status and fame and ability, that it was doing everything that it could on the inside, and they were doing all these things, and Jesus is standing out on the front porch of the church, knocking on the door saying, hey, you forgot something. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door? The door of the church. I stand at the door and knock. I'm outside. Jesus is saying, look, y'all are doing all this. I'm out here. You've forgotten me. In your haste to do the Lord's work, you have forgotten the Lord. In your haste to worship, you have forgotten who you worship. In your haste to serve, you have forgotten who you serve. I'm standing at the door. And, and this is what's amazing. It says, I'm standing at the door and I knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It means I'm standing at the door constantly and I am knocking continually. He's knocking. He's pounding on the door. Let me in. This is a church that had gotten so busy doing the work of the church that it forgot her ultimate purpose was to submit to and worship the Lord of the church. This is scary. It's scary because if you're like this, you don't see it. If you're like this, you don't notice it. Because 
you are self-sufficient. If you're like this, our first reaction is to say, I'm not like this. And he says, why? Because you think you see, but you're actually blind. If you're like this, you don't know you're like this. If you're like this, it could be a church that carries on with its ministries, does all manner of things. And the scary thing is, is that means you could come in this room, we could pray, we can give, we can sing praises to his name, we can hear his word, we can do all those things. And you know where he is? He could be outside going, did y'all forget something? See, this looks like a church that is very busy, very prominent. Very capable, but has forgotten that Jesus is both the authority and the center of everything we do. Everything we do. You know, that means we don't do things, we don't set things up because, well, I think this will work. We set these things up because we say, well, because the Bible says. Jesus says. Because if we don't do that, you know what we've done? We've put our own opinions, our own ability, our own sufficiency in place. And we are not finding our value and our authority in Jesus. We're finding it in our own opinions and our own desires. Okay. This is a pretty heavy indictment to the church at Laodicea. But look what he says. Because the standing at the door and knocking, the telling them to be zealous to repent, look what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's a promise. Church, that says, look, if you're in this place, he's telling the church later, I see it. You're in this place. He says, if you're in this place, I'm at the door. Isn't that amazing? See, other ones he just said, I'm coming and I'm going to snuff you out. Other ones he said, I'm coming and I'm going to handle this. But with Laodicea, with all the strong rebuke to them, he looks at Laodicea and he says, hey, I'm outside, but if you'll just open the door, I'll come in. You notice it's phrased as a promise. If his church will stop being self-sufficient and determine that Jesus alone and his word is the authority from this day forward moving ahead... You're opening the door. Jesus says, I'll come in. I'll come in. And I will eat with you and you with me. It's a a statement of fellowship. Why? Because in the end, all the things that we could do in this world, the one thing that we should desire most of all is the presence of God. Why? Because the heaven of heaven is that now we see through a glass dimly, but one day we will see face to face. It is that we are with him. The promise of 1 Thessalonians 4. And so we will be with the Lord forever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Greater is one day in your house, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. It's the presence of God. So there's an opportunity for grace. He's offering grace. He's offering Mercy, he's offering forgiveness if we will open the door. And then he says this, 
And the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, if we remain faithful, if we open the door, we let him in, we overcome, he says, you will be a permanent part of the family of God. You prove that you are a permanent part of the family of God. You are a royal heir, Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the scripture promises us that if we remain faithful, it is the proof of our salvation. And because of that, we will reign with Jesus forever. Annie Sherwood Hawks was born in 1835 in New York. And by the age of 14, she was actually already weekly almost published in the newspaper there in Troy, New York. At the age of 24, she married. She moved to Brooklyn and ultimately raised three children as a homemaker. That's what she did. And in Brooklyn, when they got there, they joined Dr. Robert Lowry's church... He was a famed hymn writer and composer, and he very quickly saw her talent, and because of that, he went to her and made a proposal. He said, look, if you will write the words, I'll write the music. And so impacted by the tendency we all have, both as the church and as individuals, to be self-sufficient, to be dependent on ourselves and our own strength, she said, quote, I remember well... The morning when in the midst of my daily chores in the home, I was so filled with the sense of the nearness of the master, I wondered how one could live without him, either in joy or in pain. She wrote over 400 hymns, and yet this is the only one that is still sung today. Moved by her realization of her absolute dependence on the Lord, not her self-sufficiency, her absolute dependence on the Lord, she wrote these words. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour, enjoy or in pain, come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee every hour, teach me thy will, and thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour, most holy one. O make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. I need thee, O I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Whether you realize it or not, you depend on him for every single thing you have. The very breath you are taking right now came from him. And you and I are not guaranteed the next one. 
If you think you can depend on yourself and your own ability to gain eternal life, you will be sorely mistaken. Because Jesus is Lord. And because He is Lord of all, you must submit to Him now. Or you will never be with Him in eternity. There may be some here this morning staunchly resting in your unbelief. And I'm glad you're here. However, there may be someone here right now in this moment. You're hoping I will finish soon because you realize your need. You realize your need for a Savior. You realize that you have been depending on yourself and you need Him. But right now in this moment you're thinking if He'll just get done then I can make it another week until I have to come back. Why would you want to live like that when there is so much more in Christ? What is he offering you? He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you will simply repent, turn away from your sin, and you will believe in him. Now, I will let you know Sometimes I go long and don't intend to. I intended to go long this morning. I knew I was going to. But church, are we depending on ourselves? Have we become so enamored with what we can do and what we can provide that we have forgotten the Lord of the church? Is he constantly in the midst of everything we do or is he outside knocking on the door asking to be let in? The beauty is this. He could have just come and told them, I'm done with you. You're an embarrassment. You make me sick. It's over. But instead, because he loves them, because he loves us, he is standing today at the door of the church, knocking and saying, if you'll let me in, I'll come in. I will dwell with you, I will eat with you, I will fellowship with you, and I will, make, I will bring Eastwood into days you never thought possible. But that's not because of our own ingenuity, not because of our own ability, solely because, in the end, I couldn't care less about any of those things. All I want is the presence of God. And if we have the presence of God, then nothing else matters. What he wants is the most important thing. What he desires is the most important thing. What his word says is the most important thing, regardless of what it calls us to change. And that's the fear we have, because we know when we're in the presence of God, our sin is apparent, our need is clear, our inability is overwhelmingly certain. And he calls us, as I prayed at the very beginning of the sermon, not just to understand something new, but to be changed, to be more like his son. Are we going to be the church that leaves Jesus outside and keeps doing our own thing? Or are we going to open the door and say, Jesus, come in. You're the authority. Your word is the authority. We want to stand on your word and your word alone. That's the call this morning, church. And it begins in us individually. It does.
Self-sufficient churches exist because self-sufficient people exist. And so whatever you are being self-sufficient for, allow Jesus back in the center. Church, sometimes we need to call out corporately. Whatever needs to be done, we need to do it this morning. Why? Because he says, be zealous. Be zealous and repent. I don't want him to show up in discipline. I want his presence to be full. Right here. Where when people come in, even if they don't know the Lord, they may say something like, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's different. All I know is this, is that when I go into that place, I can feel the presence of God. May he be glorified in what he is about to do in our own hearts and in the life of our church. Heavenly Father.